All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everyone watching and listening. Um, hello to all of those of you from around the country who've been watching and listening. And a very special thank you and welcome, of course, to our brothers and sisters from around the world. Some of you have been with us for almost two years now. We rejoice in you very much. We love you very much. And thank you and pray for you constantly. Thank you for for joining us. <clears throat> this morning we will focus on one verse, one very important text in particular, one of the most important truths given to us by way of the Lord Jesus, by way of the Gospels, and by way of this Gospel in particular, living water, and he who is the source of living water, and what that living water means. So would you please stand with me to honor the reading of the Word of the Lord, John chapter 4. Verse 10, <clears throat> I will begin at the top of the chapter, the top of the conversation, hopefully as we read through it, some of the things that we've discovered thus far will come to the forefront of your memory. John chapter 4, verse 10 today in particular, when therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that he, that Jesus, was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. <clears throat> so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by or on that well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, <clears throat> Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For, as the Apostle John tells us, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, our text for the day. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. <clears throat> Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we ask you for the strength and the power of your Holy Spirit to proclaim your word in truth, the whole truth, the truth, nothing but your truth. May your word go out from this humble place to bless folks from all over the world. Open the minds and hearts of all of those watching and listening to those who are brothers and sisters in Jesus to be strengthened anew and afresh all over again by the truth of your word. And may those here who need salvation and be drawn to you, the one and only true source of living water, eternal life. May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth, O Sovereign God, be pleasing to you. You who are our rock and our redeemer. You who are the very spring, the very fountainhead of this living water. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, 
You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. One of the most wonderful teachings and truths given us by Christ in all the Gospels and all the New Testament. It is why this conversation is so well known, why it is so meaningful, why it is so important, why it is so well loved. And if you recall from last week, Jesus, of course, initiates this conversation in a rather controversial situation, to say the least, by asking of this woman, who one would expect to be considered a mortal enemy, by asking her for a simple favor, which anybody could understand and appreciate. <clears throat> the woman responds. Shock, surprise, mixed emotions, certainly. As considering they are Jew and Samaritan, considering the troubled relations that Jews and Samaritans have at this particular time in history, and have for centuries, really. Then Jesus gives this magnificent reply to this Samaritan's woman's response to him. He responds, or he gives answer to her rejoinder to him, to his initial uh, question, request. Now, the subject matter <clears throat> of this conversation, if you've had a look at this text in advance, the subject matter, the theme, the truth of this conversation is very much the same as the conversation with Nicodemus. There are just a few differences considering Jesus is speaking to, well, what would someone would say at face value, or two radically different people from radically different backgrounds and two complete opposites of the social and cultural spectrum almost. He uses much the same language. You should be able to recognize this and identify what he's speaking of. But he just uses some different nuances. He uses slightly different language. Language tailored to each individual in particular. But the subject matter, the truth that he's teaching, it's very much the same. Few differences, again, considering who he's speaking with, of course. <clears throat> and if you notice, uh, well, now the same thing happens as with Nicodemus, doesn't it? He begins to reveal truth immediately. He begins to teach this woman well nigh, almost if not immediately, as with Nicodemus. Uh, to our international viewers, pardon slang American expressions, but Jesus cuts straight to the chase, as we say. He cuts straight to the heart, straight to the core of the matter. He always goes to the heart of every matter, does he not? He always, pardon the American expression, he always means business. He does. He is in earnest here. He never wastes time. He never dances around or skirts around an, an issue. Never at all. Our Lord always means business, as we say. Let me quote Edward Clink from a wonderful, relatively new commentary <clears throat> I've been enjoying lately. He gives good summations at the beginning and ends of certain chunks or sections of text. I like the way he does so. He writes, Jesus receives the woman's surprise and response, and he counters them both immediately. It's as if he's saying to her, the surprise here is far greater than you can even imagine. You're surprised that I, a Jewish rabbi, am asking a favor of you? Oh my. The surprise here is far greater than you could imagine. And your response is the exact opposite that it would be if you truly knew the one with whom you are speaking. <clears throat> this woman does not know who Jesus really is. And so she, therefore, is acting inappropriately. His identity in his incarnation is Jewish, yes. His appearance in the flesh is that of a tired, thirsty traveler, yes. And yet the truth is that he is the one and only unique son of the Father from the prologue. He is a very expression 
of the love of God in the flesh, end quote. And so this is very much a case of what we would call mistaken identity. Mistaken identity, or she is ignorant of his identity. And yet he is the one that she claims later in the conversation that she's been looking for all her life. Don't forget that the Samaritans, as well as the Jews, are both anticipating and looking for the Messiah. <clears throat> so at the first, and of course Jesus will in time tell her exactly who he is, but at the first, at the beginning of this conversation, of course, she really has no earthly idea who she's really dealing with. How could she? How could she? She's meeting with God Almighty in a human body. God Almighty in a human nature, in a human body. God Almighty entering history, entering His own creation. God Almighty, the Messiah of the Jews first, and then a light to the Gentiles. Sitting there hot, dusty, dirty, tired, and hungry at a historically significant well to speak to her privately at the first, individually. A meeting which will change this woman's life, which will change her eternity. How could she know? Allow me to again draw your attention <clears throat> to the wonder and the magnificence of the incarnation of God. That's what Christmas is all about, folks. It's about the incarnation of God. Full stop. Period. End of story. The incarnation of God and all that means and all that brings. <clears throat> God is disguised somewhat. He's camouflaged somewhat and yet revealed to humanity in human flesh. She's a very sinful person. We're all very sinful people. Some of us just have different sorts of pet sins which ruin our lives and souls than others. She's a sinful human being who cannot respond <clears throat> correctly because she just doesn't know who he is. Such is the case with all of us. There's a major lesson to be learned here. We cannot respond to Jesus. We cannot respond to God wisely or well until we realize, until we acknowledge who he really and truly is. And so he arrived in the flesh to reveal himself to her, to us. He arrived to reveal himself, God. God the Son. Never forget the prologue, as I say. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God to humanity. <clears throat> and so I think, I agree with those commentators who think, <laughs> this is another one. Wouldn't you love to have been there? I don't mean to sound cheap or trite, but wouldn't you love to have been there? Wouldn't you have been, love to have been the uh, proverbial fly resting on one of the stones of that well? to watch this and listen to us. I think Jesus makes use of her shock and her surprise. He uses it to full advantage to save this woman. As William Hendrickson writes in his commentary, he's going to fan into flames this woman's curiosity. In order to what? We'll draw her in. Enable her to talk to him. Enable her to feel free to ask more questions. In order to deal with him more honestly and more openly. She may respect him, this Jewish rabbi, a little more. She may place more trust in him thereby in what he says, what he's trying to teach her. So her respect and her trust in what he says <clears throat> may increase. And so the work of the rescue of this woman's life and soul can make some progress here. The truth lesson he's going to give her, pray God it will take flight, and it will. It will carry her higher and further than she ever possibly could have imagined. 
And let's hope someone receiving this message 2,000 years later will ride her coattails, as we say, into flight, into salvation, into living water. So some have accused Jesus of sort of enigmatically almost ignoring what she says. I don't think he does that at all. I don't think he ignores her response at all in verse 9. He just answers completely different, doesn't he? He just answers in a totally different fashion than what she would have expected. Again, another lesson from last week. Isn't that often the way that he deals with us? Each and every one of us? Isn't that the way Jesus God deals with all of us? He's full of surprises. Remember last week. He's always full of surprises. That's not meant to be cute at all. He's full of surprises, and they're all for our ultimate good, for our ultimate salvation, for life by way of this living water that he speaks of. And so, he, of course, he's, he has to show this woman that <clears throat> her initial way of treating him, her initial way of dealing with him, it's all based on erroneous presuppositions. He's no normal Jewish man. <laughs> he's no normal run-of-the-mill Jewish, Messiah, uh, Jewish rabbi. He's the Messiah. And he's going to tell her that. I think that's one of the most amazing moments in history. It makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand straight up on end. Every time I read this verse, when she starts talking about the Messiah, forgive me for getting ahead of myself, and he looks this woman straight in the eye and straight in the face and says, I am the Messiah. That's an astounding thing. Astounding thing. So he has to show her. <clears throat> well, and carefully and gently, he's going to take her by the hand and lead her down the path to reveal who he truly is. Dealing with him is not like dealing with anybody else. He has to correct her erroneous presuppositions or mistaken identity. He's got to help her along. By the way, he has to help all of us along. That's why this heck took place, and that's why this was recorded, to help us along to the spring of life of living water. So at the beginning of this conversation, I think this woman may, may, may be enjoying herself somewhat, and <clears throat> that by circumstance she believes she might have the upper hand. In other words, oh, look here. I have a picture and you don't. A Jewish man, a Jewish rabbi, having to condescend to ask me, a lowly Samaritan pariah dog, for a favor. How about that? You need my help, Mr. Jewish rabbi. Although I think at this point in the conversation, even now, <clears throat> this woman must know that she is in the presence of a most extraordinary person, the likes of which she has never met before. But she's not self-sufficient. She's not. Not in any way. She really doesn't have the upper hand. She really is not the superior here due to simple circumstance. She is the one that is in terrible, desperate need here. And Jesus, in every way imaginable, is the superior here by virtue of who he is. Remember the prologue? And he is the one and he is the only one that can repair this woman's messed up life. That can rescue the hash out of her life that she's made of. And it's true for all the rest of us. He is the only one that can meet this woman's need. He is the one and the only one that can meet all of sinful humanity's desperate need. And by his answer here, Jesus <clears throat> tells her the opposite is the case. He in his human flesh, he may need a drink of physical water, just like everybody else. Wonder that that is the wonder of the incarnation and never lose the wonder and all that that should strike us with whenever we're confronted with it constantly. But she, 
<clears throat> she is the one who really needs water, not physical water, from the spring that feeds Jacob's well 100 feet down. She needs the water that he speaks of. She needs a metaphorical water. She needs a supernatural water. She needs a spiritual water that he speaks of. And he is the one and the only fountain, the one and the only spring, who is able to supply this supernatural water. And so he says, if you knew, <clears throat> or pardon me, as we often say in the English, if only you really knew. I thought of this several times this week. Jesus is the only person in history who really has every re legitimate right to say, do you know who I am? Do you really know who I am? Do you realize who I am? We make fun of very arrogant, prideful people, don't we? We make fun of them with that joke, do you know who I am? Right? Jesus is the only person in history who really had the right to say, do you know who I am? And he does so, doesn't he? It's basically what he's saying. If you only knew, if you only knew who I really am, you're about to find out. That's why I've come. <clears throat> if you only knew the gift of God, in other words, let me pray a phrase without doing any damage to the original text, of course. If you only knew the gift of God that I, the Son of God, can give you. So what does Jesus mean exactly here by gift? This gift of God. What, what is this? What is this gift of God he speaks of? Tondoreon tuteu in the Greek. The word gift is dorea or doreon. And it's interesting, it's not the most common word for gift in Koine Greek, but it is another word which you can justly translate as gift. Tondoreon tuteu in the Greek. Gift, doreon, doreu. This word is not the most common one for gift. However, it is found about 11 times in the New Testament. And the interesting thing is, when this word is used, it always denotes a gift coming from God. It always denotes a graciously bestowed offered or a graciously offered gift of God, gift from God. Now, out of the four of the 11 times, you may be interested to know it refers specifically to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Water, if you remember, is one of sacred scripture's symbols or metaphors for the Holy Spirit. So this gift of God Jesus speaks of is this living water. The gift that he speaks of is living water, the living water he mentions. Let me read this verse again with something of a, a paraphrase for you. If you only knew the gift of God that I, the Son of God, have come to give you, if you only knew who I am, the one who is asking you for a drink, give me a drink, you would be asking me for this gift that I have come to give. And the gift that I would give you is living water. This living water. <clears throat> so this gift of God that Jesus has come to bring, to give, let's put this together with what we have learned from the conversation in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, the truth given us in chapter 3. Since eternal life, the new birth, the born-again life, the cleansing of the soul, since eternal life and the new birth, by way of the Spirit, due to the work of the Son, was the subject matter of chapter 3. <clears throat> In this next episode, this next conversation, in this context, the truth is the same. The truth is the same here. 
Jesus is revealing the same profound foundational truth here, but he's revealing it to a different person, a very different person. So he's revealing it to them in a slightly different language, in a slightly different way. This gift of God is eternal life, which is what, according to chapter 3, to be born again from above, of water, sound familiar? And the Spirit. The gift is this living water, which equals the new birth, eternal life, by the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's soul, all because of and all due to the accomplished work of Christ the Son, the Word made flesh. So you see, Jesus will use this living water metaphor for this woman to respond to. She, she will respond well to, to the metaphor. She'll respond well to the language, to the terminology that he's using. I'll explain this to you. Because this is Jacob's well, a very important historic water source. Jacob's well and what it means to her, to this whole community. Now, let me explain. To this woman, to all the Samaritans, to the Jews, to anyone in the Mediterranean world, to anyone in Palestine in the first century A.D., especially to Jews, the expression living water meant something physical and it meant something metaphorical. This woman is going to initially think he may be speaking of something physical. If I were someone living in first century Palestine and I used the expression living water, you would all know exactly what I meant. The expression living water means fresh, running, flowing, sweet water. Safe water to drink, which you have to have, obviously, in order to survive. And imagine how important water was in the first century A.D. with absolutely no running water source or modern plumbing whatsoever. So living water to all of these folks would mean fresh, sweet, safe, running or flowing water. Living water is fresh, safe, drinkable water. In particular, running or moving water from a spring or from a creek that was fed by a spring where springs flowed into the creek or by a river where the water was constantly cleaning itself. It was constantly in motion. It was constantly moving. That was considered pure or safe water by these folks. By the way, the Jews at this time were still using these ceremonial washing rituals from the Old Testament. <clears throat> they had to have their hands washed in living water. What does that mean? It means you don't stick your hands into water that's perfectly still in a bowl. You had someone pour moving or living water over your hands to clean your hands. That's how important it was to them. Now, <clears throat> let me give you a little reminder, very important detail. What is the water source that feeds Jacob's well? It's a very large, fresh water spring of living water. Jacob's well was fed by fresh water, living water, a large, fresh, living water spring. And we are told it still is to this day. But Jesus here, he doesn't mean that kind of water, that kind of living water from Jacob's well that sustains the body. Jesus means a supernatural living water that gives life to the soul and sustains the soul, the core of your being. So he means something else. He means something different. He means something that's transcendent, something supernatural, something spiritual, <clears throat> something that is a gracious gift of God, something that he and he alone can make possible. Now, to a first century Jew who possessed and read the entire Old Testament, living water did have spiritual significance you do find this expression or expressions very similar in the Old Testament. The Samaritan woman has a profound problem. She does not have all of the Old Testament. She doesn't have these references. If you remember what I, uh, 
when I spoke to you last week or week before and trying to familiarize you with the differences between Jews <coughs> and uh, Samaritans. The Samaritans only accepted the five books of Moses. That's all the Old Testament, the Word of God that they accepted. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So all of these wonderful references to this spiritual water in the remainder of the Old Testament, they didn't have it because they rejected it. They ignored it. So they wouldn't know what in the world he's talking about. And so the Samaritan woman almost certainly didn't know this because they rejected the Old Testament. Now, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, for example, the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13 states, my people, this is the voice of the Lord, of course, is recorded and given by the prophet. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. Sound familiar? They have forsaken me. My people have forsaken me. I am the very source, the very fountain, the very spring of living water. Meaning, I am the fountainhead, the source of eternal life, the cleansing of the soul. And they have rejected me. God himself is that source of life, spiritual life, this living water. They have dug their own cisterns. They, they are broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In other words, they're looking to save themselves. They're looking for salvation, for eternal life, for spiritual cleansing in other sources. And their other sources are broken cisterns which cannot hold the living water that I am, that I provide, and that I bring. <clears throat> also in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8, Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 9, both of these prophets spoke of a time, a future time, the age of the Messiah, when, quote, living water, sound familiar? Living water will flow out from Jerusalem. Because of Messiah's work, the grace of God, salvation, the cleansing of the soul, eternal life, the life-giving power of the Spirit, will come to and will flow forth from Jerusalem, a prophecy of what would take place when Messiah arrived and the Messiah performed his work. Also in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16 to 18, Ezekiel chapter 36, which prophesies the new covenant. Isaiah 1, 16, 18, Ezekiel 36, 25, 27, <clears throat> supernatural water, spiritual water is spoken of and promised in these texts. Spiritual water, which promises the cleansing power of God's Holy Spirit in the human soul. Jesus is alluding to this. He was referring to this. And if you remember, he referred to this in his conversation with Nicodemus, if you recall. He's doing, wishes to do the same thing here with a woman who is largely ignorant of the Old Testament Scriptures. All of these prophecies I gave you, all of these truths of the work of God, they all appear in this gospel by the use of the words water or living water. How's that for drawing the entire biblical message of salvation together? In John's Gospel, if you remember, we'll come to them, of course. <clears throat> In John's Gospel, there's a number of passages where Jesus himself is said to be the living water. Jesus himself is living water, the source of living water. And if you remember, he says that he himself is the bread who came down from heaven to give life to the soul in John chapter 6. And there's other passages where the gospel says Jesus gives this living water to those who believe in him. That's exactly what's happening here. If you only knew who I was, you would be asking me, 
for supernatural water. I'm the one and the only one that can give it to you. So, <clears throat> in this chapter, chapter 4, conversation with this woman, it is the supernatural water which cleanses a person's soul, which gives them eternal life. That's what's being spoke of here. And this is mediated to a person's soul by the Spirit of God because of the work of Jesus. So only Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Messiah, only the Savior of the world, He only He can provide this. Now remember how your salvation works. Let me remind you, we've discovered this already in the Gospel of John, how your salvation works, how this works out, how this happens. <clears throat> how it takes place, we find it here in chapter 3 and chapter 4 and elsewhere. Your salvation is planned and decreed by God the Father. Your salvation is achieved, it is won for us, by the atoning work of the Son, the Word made flesh. And the accomplished work of the Son is applied to the souls of human beings by God the Holy Spirit, living water. Your salvation is a Trinitarian work. It's all rooted in the Trinitarian person and being and identity of God. Now, before our, before our salvation, what were we? Allow me to refer to the prophet. You're a dead, stagnant cistern. That's the bad news. You're a broken cistern, which cannot hold water. Have hope. Be of good cheer. Have faith. The one who is the true fountainhead and source of living water to give you life, he has arrived. Before our salvation, we were stagnant, full of bitter, dead water in the soul. At salvation, Jesus is saying, after salvation, the new birth, your soul is made alive. A freshwater spring, living water, the living water of the Spirit of God because of the coming work of the Son. That's what Jesus is describing to this woman. And through her experience, that's what he is describing to all of us, to you and me. This is the gift of God he came to bring to this woman, to Samaritans, to Jews, to all humanity. <clears throat> now we should also take note of this. Pardon me. There might be a gentle rebuke here. <laughs> there might be something of a very mild rebuke here in what Jesus is saying. What Jesus says to this woman, he, he very well may be saying something like this. <clears throat> I only asked you for common, ordinary water to sustain one's life for a day at a time. A basic gift, the baser gift, the lesser gift or favor. But you, being a Samaritan reacting to a Jew, you hesitate. If you only knew who I really am and what I have come to give, you would be asking me for living water, for eternal life, for the cleansing of your soul, that which can rescue your mess of a life. The greatest gift of all. The gift of God. And if you had asked that of me, I would not hesitate to give it to you. I would have given it to you immediately, and I would give it to you at once and in full. And so he says, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink. She doesn't know who he really is, but she's about to find out. She will find out... <clears throat> You have an advantage here by reading this gospel. You realize that? You know something that she doesn't know yet. You're ahead of her. She will find out what we, the readers of this gospel, 
already know from the prologue. You read the gospel. You know who exactly who he is and what his mission is all about from the very beginning of the gospel, from the very beginning of chapter 1. You know what this woman has to find out. We should also take pause to take note of what else is said of this living water in the remainder of the New Testament. Oh yes, you do find this living water in those words, in that imagery, in the remainder of the New Testament. What were the books that the Apostle John wrote? Well, obviously the Gospel. First, second, third, John. What's the other? The book of the revelation of Jesus the Christ as given to his slave, John. In the book of the Revelation, we find Revelation chapter 7, verses 16, 17, this gift of God in Jesus' words begin, appears again. Revelation 7, 16, 7, 16, 17 states, Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. Does that sound familiar? It should cause you immediately to think of this very incident in chapter 4. Never again will they hunger. Because Jesus was hungry at the well that day, you will never go hungry again. Never again will they thirst. Never again will you thirst in your soul. Because Jesus, in His incarnation, condescended to be thirsty at that well that faithful day. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, because He, in His incarnation, allowed the sun to beat down on Him with scorching heat for our behalf in the world to come in eternal life. Nature will be your friend and will never harm you or be your enemy ever again. Does all this sound familiar? For the Lamb, the text says, at the very center of the throne, meaning the Lamb is God, from the center of God's throne, He will be their shepherd. He will, here we are, He will lead them to the springs of living water. Cleansing for your soul, life for your soul, forever in the personal presence of God, a life which knows no end. And Revelation chapter 21, verse 6 states, He, God, He, Jesus, said to me, It is done. <clears throat> it is accomplished. I am the Alpha, I am the Omega. I am the beginning, I am the end. To the thirsty, the spiritually thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Sound familiar? There you have it. From the Gospel of John, chapter 4, to the revelation of Jesus the Christ, given to the Apostle John. The theme and meaning of living water, eternal life, cleansing of the soul. The last word of the day, <clears throat> I give to uh, <clears throat> Dr. Edward Clink from his commentary. He writes, Thus this living water, in this context of Jacob's well, on this sun-beating-down day, it is rest and satisfaction for the soul that this woman desperately needs, that all of us desperately needs. It is eternal life, rooted in the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and mediated by Jesus the Christ, His person, and His work is inclusive of everything the prophets of old could foretell and all that the revelation could describe. It is perfect provision from God, with God, and for the glory of God. It is what John Calvin summarized as the whole grace of the renewal of the soul. Even in his human fatigue and thirst, 
Jesus, as we will find, was fully satisfied. It was the Samaritan woman, competent enough to draw water for Jesus. She is the one who is in true need, end quote. Her need was and is the need of all humanity. And Jesus, the Word made flesh, has arrived to perfectly provide for that deepest need. For her, for all of us. And to that need, and to meeting that need, and to this most wonderful conversation, we return the next Lord's Day. In the meanwhile, <clears throat> these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, the Messiah, and that by believing in His name, you may have this living water, eternal life in His name. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, bless this proclamation of Your Word, that it will refresh the souls of those who know You, those who possess eternal life, this living water, this spring of living water in their soul, and we hope, we trust, we pray that your spirit, by way of the proclamation of your word, will draw thirsty sinners to he who is the fountain of life, that they will receive this spring of living water in their soul, and thereby enjoy the cleansing of their soul, the rescue of their life, and receive eternal life. In the name of he who is the word made flesh, he who is this source of living water and the giver of this living water, in Jesus' most holy name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm. <laughs>